Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The firm is a mission-driven firm. What does that mean to you? It means that first and foremost, we are trying to do important, impactful cases that have a greater public good. That was Adam Pollack. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to the FCPA Compliance Report. I have a long visit with Adam today. He is a well-known KETAM, False Claims Act, and whistleblower practitioner working in a mission-driven firm. We have a great discussion about the intersection of KETAM, FCA, and whistleblower claims. Turns out that KETAM cases go back to the Middle Ages. We take a deep dive into the Supreme Court, Chuck Grassley, and many other topics. Are you interested in the intersection of Sherlock Holmes and compliance? If so, check out my great new podcast series, Adventures in Compliance, where I go through each story. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode, and you're in for a treat today because, as usual, I'm in for a treat. Today, I have with me Adam Pollack. Adam is a key TAM a whistleblower, and all-around lawyer in these areas and false claims acts. So we're going to visit about that area, how that all relates to compliance, and generally geek out. So Adam, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to talking with you. Yeah. Could you tell us uh, your academic and professional background, Adam? Sure. So I was actually a computer science student at the University of Michigan, basically a dinosaur age ago, as it were. But I still think as a lawyer, it helps me to bring a lot of perspective to what I do and adapt to technology as it continues to move. I like to stay on the cutting edge of technology. In my practice, I went to law school. I worked in Silicon Valley. I worked on something called cloud computing. You've heard of it now. No one had heard of it back then. It was a neat and emerging field. I went to the University of Pennsylvania, the Penn, for law school, which was great. It was such a great experience. I felt like it was an intellectually rich, a tidal wave. And if they would have let me stay there for three more years, I would have done it. Tell us about uh, your life as a practicing lawyer, Adam. I have been a lawyer since I graduated in 2006. I've made a full, not circle, a semicircle from the defense side, I grew up at a tremendous firm called Morvillo Bronfitz doing white collar defense and doing defense of Ketam cases, which is where I got interested in this world. Ketam cases, we can talk about it, but get served on the government as an initial matter. So I went to government. I went to the New York State Attorney General's office to work on the government side of Ketam or False Claims Act cases. And I came out and I've been doing plaintiff side for the last five and a half years or key TAM relator side work. So I, I've done the semicircle. Adam, in addition to being a fellow Michigan Wolverine, you're also the first computer science major, if they still have that major, that I've had on the podcast. Kudos for both. And the perspective, as you said, it brings to you in the practice of law. 
Could you tell us about the firm you work at now and the nature of your practice? Sure. So we started this, my partner Steve Cohen and I were the original founders of this firm five and a half years ago, and we set out to do something different. We wanted to be focused first and foremost on the mission, focused on having a greater public good, focused on being impactful overall, and being values-driven. We're still a business. We still make money, but we put first and foremost those values, and we put them into play. Let me ask. Uh, let me throw out three terms and ask you if uh, they all mean the same or they mean some things that are a little bit different. The first you've mentioned, which is KETAM. The second is the False Claims Act. And the third is whistleblower suits. Are they the same? Do they relate to each other? Could you just maybe explain each of those for us? So I can certainly get into the Venn diagram of how they overlap. See what I did there? Very um, good. Thanks. So the KETAM suits are suits filed by private individuals on behalf of the government. And this idea is very old. And False Claims Act, I'll come back to it, but False Claims Act is one type of KETAM suit. KETAM cases go back to at least the Middle Ages in England, where private individuals filed cases on behalf of the king, and they were allowed to keep a portion of what they recovered for the king. And this transfers over into colonial days, into what becomes the United States, and transfers over into when we have the constitutional system from 1787, some of the first statutes were key TAM statutes. Basically, the government allowed private individuals to go out there and enforce the law and keep a reward for doing so. When it comes to the Civil War era time, there were army contractors, defense contractors, who were defrauding the government, famously providing sawdust instead of ammunition or lame mules instead of good horses for war. And so the government, fed up with being defrauded, says, hey, we need a statute. This is, becomes known as Lincoln's Law. We need a statute that will allow private individuals to go out there and chase fraud on behalf of the government and get paid to do so. And so this becomes known as the False Claims Act. There are a couple other key TAM statutes poking about. But today, this is the primary key TAM statute, the primary statute where private individuals can enforce claims on behalf of the government. What about whistleblowers? Whistleblowers. So who are these individuals who are saying that the government was defrauded, that the government was buying sawdust when it thought it was buying ammunition? Who are these individuals who are saying, hey, that's Medicare fraud or that's other kinds of procurement fraud? These are whistleblowers who are filing key TAM cases under the False Claims Act. There are other whistleblower statutes that we are working under that provide private opportunities to private individuals to blow the whistle on securities fraud through the SEC's whistleblower program, uh, tax fraud through the IRS's whistleblower program, commodities trading fraud through the CFTC program, and other whistleblower statutes. So these are whistleblower claims. They're not whistleblower complaints, which is why they're not key tail complaints. Adam, I'm probably should end the podcast here because that is as fine a description and definition of those three terms and topics that I've ever heard. And I think for the first time in my life, I even understand it. But maybe we can continue. You mentioned the firm is a mission-driven firm. What does that mean to you? It means that first and foremost, we are trying to do important, impactful cases that have a greater public good 
we sued the government over regulation of menthol cigarettes. This is in it. Menthol cigarettes are basically marketed to the African American community, and for no good reason except that market opportunity. If you look at black individuals who smoke, something like eighty percent smoke menthol cigarettes. It's a crazy and staggering statistic, and it's purely marketing. And so we sued the government on behalf of the AMA, the American Medical Association, and the African American Tobacco Leadership Council. About the regulation of menthol cigarettes. This was a principled, good lawsuit, and eventually the Biden administration agreed to settle that case and take menthol cigarettes off the market. This is an example of being mission-driven. How about some other areas that uh, you and your firm have worked on that have generated public benefits? Uh, maybe some cases or general topics that uh, you guys have handled. Sure. So. Everything from the key TAM world to the class action world, what we are focused on is cases that make a difference. In the class action world, we've been litigating cases on behalf of New York City retirees. There are presently 250,000 retirees who previously worked for the city of New York. Huge city, a lot of retirees. And the city was messing with their health benefits. We went into court and we won a injunction barring the city from changing their health benefits. So then the city tried to impose co-pays that to get people to start paying co-pays that they weren't previously. We got another injunction in a second case. We now have won three injunctions from the city with respect to health insurance. This is a good example of where we're out there making a difference. And any claims involving or cases involving insurance companies and their denials of coverage? So we've, th this is a really important topic for us, which is people have joked around with me, what's the purpose of a health insurance company? It's to not pay claims, to deny claims. And uh, unfortunately, that rings all too true. We litigated a case up to the Second Circuit, which um, we did not win, and it's not going to stop us about denial of claims where these insurance companies, they outsource this decision about whether a treatment is medical, medically necessary to third parties, to doctors who are employed by a third party who are deciding whether treatment is medically necessary. And we had a client, unfortunately has since passed, who had advanced cancer and the, her own doctor said she needed an MRI and the insurance company wouldn't pay for, oh, it's not medically necessary. And they fought for months and months over medical authorization until it finally got approved and the doctor said it was too late. They had to amputate and eventually she died. And the doctor said, had, her own doctor said, had I been there earlier, had we got this MRI earlier? So we sued that third party doctor, the one that said, this is not medically necessary. And we lost, but we're going to keep fighting because this is an a... a on this issue, this is something that affects all Americans today, this business of denials by insurance companies. Adam, one of the most interesting areas, I think, right now around data privacy is personal biometric data and the personal biometric arena. Are you guys in that area? And if so, could you describe generally the issues that you are trying to put forward? Yeah, we are in this area, and I think this is something that essentially all Americans can agree upon, from my kids to my parents, 
and across the political spectrum and across the country, everyone's creeped out by this biometric invasions of these face scannings. It, that's the technical legal term, right? Creeped out. No one wants this. So we've been taking cities and states nationwide are starting to introduce legislation around this issue that's very important to so many people. And companies have a duty at a minimum, if they're going to start using this creepy technology, they got to follow the law. This isn't too much to ask for. If you want to be using biometric technology in New York City, and part of the issue here is these companies are not just using, taking your photo. I was on, went to that JFK about two years ago, and I get on a Delta plane, and they don't have the boarding pass scanner. Don't worry, we're just going to scan your face. It's a pilot program. No one wants that. Luckily, we didn't see that come back. No one wants to get on a plane with, but companies way more than you know about are doing this. And then they are reselling your data for profit. They have sideline business in marketing of the faces of our customers, a, a, a way of field from their core businesses. If companies are doing this, they should be telling us so that we don't go and patronize those businesses. And if the law requires that, certainly here in New York City. I'd like to now turn to some uh, False Claims Act issues, maybe some current cases that either you're involved in, but probably following, and maybe visit with you about those, because it seems like to me we're really, I don't want to say at a crossroads, but in an important place for the False Claims Act and those who bring False Claims Act cases to prevent fraud, waste, and abuse against the U.S. government. I think I have this case name correct, Exactitech. And, but if I don't, it's a case where the defendants are claiming generally that a private individual standing in the shoes of the government is not allowed under the U.S. Constitution. I was very pleased when you talked about the history and tradition of KETAM going back to the Middle Ages, not simply because I love it when lawyers can talk about things we've done for a thousand or two thousand years as one of the world's most oldest honorable professions, but also it shows that this type of claim is not new. It started certainly in Europe and in the United Kingdom, or what was then England, now the United Kingdom, but it came across uh, in colonial times, and we have a rich tradition of that, as you pointed out. Is there any chance that even this Supreme Court would not uh, overturn nearly 250 years plus in the United States, but all the way back to England? It's a great question. So there is a chance to be sure. In this term of the Supreme Court, there was a, a decision in a Keytown case, United States XRL Polanski versus Executive Health Resources. And this case was about something else. But importantly, there was a dissent by Justice Thomas that two other judges signed on to, where Justice Thomas said, I don't know about this idea of having private individuals represent the interests of the United States. Now, this is concerning. And he says, this isn't the right case for us to address this, but we invite another case to come up for us to evaluate. And the sort of, there's a number of issues wrapped up here, and they relate back to where we started in 1L CivPro, the issue of standing. Who are these whistleblowers who could be insiders, who could be outsiders? They relate information to the United States. 
And they have historically, at least since the year 700, roughly, had standing. They probably didn't call it standing in the year 700, right? But they've been able to go into court and bring suits on the king's behalf, to bring suits on the colony's behalf, to bring suits on the United States' behalf. And if you try to explain that in one L CIFRO or well past that, it's a little hard to explain who are these people and why do they have standing to do so. And the answer, there are a number of answers you could throw out, but an easy answer is because that's the way it's always been. And that's certainly what Justice Scalia wrote in in the year two, in 2000 in a Supreme Court decision called Vermont Agency of Natural Resources, explained this long history of standing for these Ketam relators. This is a well and long understood. Back to your sort of explanation uh, or discussion of Ketam lawsuits going back into England, where you said that the person bringing the suit, I'm going to say the term relator, but they didn't call them that back then, stood in the shoes of the king and brought a recovery on behalf of the king, and they re- uh, then received some portion of that. And if the sovereign allowed that, it could move forward in the courts. Here, hasn't the United States, as the sovereign nation, uh, allowed that or even delegated that ability to uh, a key tamer later or someone who brings a false claims act claim? So w- I would certainly argue that they have. I mean, they have. Th- that's un- unassailable. There is a law, the False Claims Act here, that delegates that responsibility to the key tam relator. The question is whether in doing so, Congress has interfered with the power of the executive to litigate their own claims. And there are different clauses of the Constitution where you might think that the that power is delegable to a private individual. Certainly, if you step back and think about it, attorney general's offices and even DOJ hire private attorneys. They just do. It is a thing that happens. In a way, this isn't that complicated. Here, the private relator, it's a little bit different than that because the private relator has more power, but yet is always subject to the oversight of DOJ can re-intervene in the case, has the power to dismiss the case, ultimately has control of the case as they should, because what are we talking about when we're talking about Medicare fraud, defense spending fraud, EBE fraud? These are all frauds, procurement frauds that affect the government at its core. The government is the real party in interest, so it makes sense that the government has the power to ultimately exercise control over the case. So we're going to go deep geek here, and I can't wait. So for those listening, get ready. Into the weeds. I've been reading about a circuit split around 9B pleading requirement under the False Claims Act. And about all I can tell you is there is a circuit split. And it seems to me to be fairly prominent and really crying out for Supreme Court guidance on this point. Could you explain what the circuit split is regarding the pleading requirement under 9B and maybe even why we haven't had a final resolution from this Supreme Court? I think that, so there's a circuit split between what we'll call a lenient pleading standard in False Claims Act and strict pleading standard. And so what are we talking about? In 
the False Claims Act is a species of, of fraud cases. You're saying that these defendants defrauded the United States of America. And when we plead fraud cases in federal court, we're subject to the 9B, FRCP 9B, heightened pleading standard. And so the real question is, if you're in a False Claims Act, you're saying the defendant has been sending false claims, false invoices to the government. And when we do that, when we plead a under 9B, when we plead a case in a fraud case, we need to plead with particularity. We need to give details of the fraud. And the real circuit split here is how much details do you need? In what we're going to call the lenient circuits, it's enough to allege the scheme at detail. You might not be able to point to particular invoices. And this gets back to the standing issue that we were just talking about, right? Because who are these key TAM relators? They are people who know about the fraud. Who knows about the fraud? It might be a company insider sitting there in the billing department who has a wealth of invoices, but it could also be somebody who was in the billing department, complained, got fired, and no longer has at her fingertips those wealth of invoices. Can that person plead a case that is based on authoritative data and personal knowledge and yet still lacks the actual false claims. Shouldn't that be enough? This is the heart of the split. All right. Then I think I've seen a statistics a statistic I wanted to run past you that 95% of FCA cases in from 2022 involved third parties or someone bringing the case and then the government deciding or not to take over the case. What's the key role of third parties in protecting the government's interests through False Claims Act prosecutions? So I think, and I keep circling back to the Exitech case that you mentioned about the role of third parties, about the role of private individuals in protecting the government's fisc, in protecting the government's monies. This is a historical role. The same issue, by the way, is now coming up in a case against Planned Parenthood in Texas, where Planned Parenthood is making the same argument that Exitech was making, that this is not constitutional. And with respect to Exitech, with respect to Planned Parenthood, I just think they're wrong. I think that there is their historical need. Government can't be everywhere. And government relies on whistleblowers to come forward and alert the government where it's being defrauded. It's a vital role. It's an age-old role. And there's a lot of good reasons that it should continue. I've talked to a fair number of lawyers who do a practice similar to yours, uh, or at least from time to time we'll dip into these cases. And what I wanted to ask is, how do you assess the current, how do you feel the current Supreme Court's views on False Claims Act cases are, even given that we had this dissent by Justice Thomas? Do you see that the Supreme Court generally favors these cases, at least as they're brought under the current law, or something else? I think it's pretty mixed. Justice Thomas had uh, two justices to sign on to this dissent. That isn't, obviously, three is not five. I, my impression is that the False Claims Act is safe. Excuse me, the False Claims Act is safe at the moment, that their historic role of whistleblowers is safe at the moment. But I do think that there's a certain conservative 
skepticism of the role of whistleblowers in suing corporations. And look, let's, let's be frank. I think that there's a current skepticism of the role of any plaintiffs who are suing big corporations and a, a certain protection in place. Here, there should be a tension between that and a parallel conservative concern about big government spending. You would think that conservatives may be concerned about where the government is being defrauded and doing everything they can to protect from that. And this is a great way to do that. that In Senator Grassley, who's a Republican, who's been the longstanding champion of the False Claims Act, of promoting and protecting the False Claims Act, this doesn't have to be a straight Democratic and Republican divide. It shouldn't be. It should cut across the aisle. Let me pick up on your last point, because I've also heard a lot of lawyers talk about Senator Grassley, what he's meant to the False Claims Act. And really, even though I would perceive him to be a fairly conservative Republican, he's very supportive of this and sees this as you do, or you just articulated as a way to to hold the government to account, excuse me, to hold contractors to account on behalf of the government to try to prevent fraud, waste, and abuse. And his really, even I think he's either introduced or considering introducing yet new legislation around the False Claims Act. Could you speak a few minutes about that? Sure. So, yes, everything you just said. Senator Grassley has been the champion, the protector. It cuts across party lines. At the moment, there are two amendments that are coming up that he has recently introduced. And one of those, which is very important, is protecting whistleblowers There's already robust anti-retaliation features in place in the law. And one question that has come up and has come up even in my own cases is what about post-employment retaliation? You firing somebody in retaliation, plainly not legal. But what if you blackball them from the industry? What if you take other steps to to mess with them after they're no longer at your company? And I think that we, we would say that the law is unsettled, but does prohibit that. But what Grassley is seeking to do at the moment is to modify the law so that it's abundantly clear that kind of post, post-employment retaliation is prohibited. And so I think not only is he out there looking out for the integrity of the law and the public fisc, but also looking out for the whistleblowers themselves. Let me ask you, Adam, to maybe look down the road to 2025 or even 2030 and ask you about the importance or even the evolution of False Claims Act cases, KETAM cases, and where you see this area of the law going and maybe your thoughts on its continued importance. There are only approximately 300 KETAM cases filed each year is a remarkable statistic. It's so small if you think about how much contracting the government does. This suggests that either the government is only being defrauded 300 times a year or that there's a, or more likely that there's an information gap, that people don't know about this. I think that's important and incumbent on whistleblower lawyers like myself and others to help get the word out there and grow the cases which ultimately benefits everybody by protecting the government's fisc, by returning ill-gained funds to the government. We benefit all 
taxpayers and non-taxpayers, frankly, who are here in the United States. So that think, first, I think there's an opportunity for growth as the internet continues to be a, a means, as we know, of spreading the word. This is a good word that can spread and bring more cases against the bad guys, recover more monies. Well, Adam, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. But before we leave, I wanted to ask you if our listeners wanted more information on yourself, your firm, or maybe the topics we've touched on, some of them, what would be the best place or places for them to go? So our website is pollockcohen.com. We also have an active presence on LinkedIn. We're out there talking about our cases. And in general, the... Taxpayers Against Fraud, which is the nonprofit that champions KETAM and other whistleblower statutes, has a robust website. There's great opportunities to learn about this, but ultimately picking up the phone and talking with a whistleblower attorney is probably the best route. Let me just, now I have to ask, obviously I'm a lawyer and most lawyers can do anything, but the reality is in a specialized area, you need a lawyer with specialization. Can I just pick up on that last point and ask you, why should someone actually talk to a whistleblowing representing lawyer as opposed to a Tom Fox or other lawyer? It's a good question. The answer here is that the world of key tamp is just different. It is what I've heard it referred to as a procedural minefield. There's a lot of different procedural features. There's a lot of different interactions with the government. There are a lot of different features about this. They're different than any other area. We regularly, all the time, we work together with, let's call normal attorneys, for lack of a better term, right? With attorneys who reach out to our firm and say, hey, I'm working on a really interesting case, but can we do it together? I want to work with a real specialized whistleblower attorney And we love that. We love meeting people all over the country to work together on these kind of cases. Adam, I wanted to uh, thank you again for taking the time to visit with me. It's been uh, fascinating. I've learned a lot. So hopefully my audience has learned a lot. And I hope that we can continue this conversation. Sounds great. Thanks for having me on. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review wherever great podcasts are listened to. I'd like to tell you about two great new podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network, Adventures in Compliance, where I look at the intersection of Sherlock Holmes, leadership, compliance, and business ethics. I'm doing all of the Sherlock Holmes stories as well as the novels. Another is Report from ECI 2023, where I interviewed speakers, guests, and participants at ECI 2023. I know you'll enjoy both of these new podcasts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.